everybody. Thank you, Minda. Thank you, Peter. Um, Kim, if you would, just open up the, the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and I would like to just go ahead and pray um, as you're turning there or as you're opening up your phone app. Um, if you would just agree with me um, as we pray, Lord, we adore you. We acknowledge you. We acknowledge that you are the head of the church. We acknowledge that you did actually physically come into the earth. You physically went to a cross and paid the penalty of our sins on our behalf. And Jesus, we want to say thank you for that this morning. We want to thank you that because of that, we have access to you and to your Father. That we are children of God through faith in you. Lord, we want to thank you forever and ever and ever. Lord, we acknowledge that you rose from the dead. You didn't stay on the cross. You didn't stay in the grave. You are alive forevermore. And you have given resurrection life to us who have called on your name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you aren't, you are at the right hand of God. You are in heaven. And Lord, we acknowledge that you are here dwelling inside of us, here in our midst right now. And you are the name that is above every other name. We humble ourselves. We bow our knee before you this morning, Jesus. We confess we are nothing apart from you. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, we want to pray, Jesus, let us not just hear it with dull hearts. Let us hear what you are saying. Lord, we pray that you would bring your church to where you want to take us. We want to pray that our hearts would be solely yours. We want to pray that we would be a people that would follow you wherever you are going. That you would manifest your purpose, your glory in the earth through us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Revelations chapter 1, we looked at that a few weeks ago, and we saw that John, the author of Revelation, the one who received that prophecy, had a revelation of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what the book opens up as, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, Jesus, in the book of Matthew chapter 16, he's talking to his disciples, and he asked them, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? In other words, what is your revelation of me, right? And Peter, of course, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter, uh, Jesus in response says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and I say to you, you are Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Meaning that Jesus is building his church. Would you agree with me? And is the church a building? It's people. It's people who have had this supernatural experience of having f- the faith in their heart to see who Jesus Christ is and, put, and have their faith put in Jesus. That's what the church is. That's who the church is. Jesus says, I will build my church. That means if that has happened to you, Jesus is building you and me together. Right? And how is he going to build it? Or on what? On this rock. What rock? The revelation of who I am. In John chapter 1, excuse me, Revelation chapter 1, we see Jesus 
walking in this revelation that John has, walking amongst the candlesticks. And later in that chapter, chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus explains the candlesticks that you saw represent the seven churches of Asia Minor. Jesus is walking amongst the candlesticks, and Jesus also has the seven spirits with them, seven stars, excuse me, seven stars in his hand, and he explains that that represents the seven messengers, or it's, it, it says angels, but most theologians would agree it's actually messengers, probably a preacher sent to each of those seven churches. Jesus holds them in his hand, okay? That's a little backdrop to this uh, chapter we're going to crack into today. We, we agreed as an eldership that we feel we need to go, we need to push into this a little bit further through the book of Revelation and the revelation of Jesus. And so today is going to kind of continue, start, I don't know, uh, a series that we're going to go through Revelation chapter 2 and 3, looking at Jesus' words to these seven churches. You ready to dig in? Now let me, as we begin, here's what Jesus says almost, there's a format, you could say, of his revelation, his, his uh, message to each of these seven churches. And we'll look at the first one being the church of Ephesus this morning. But the format is this. Number one, there's a revelation of Jesus. A revelation of Jesus. Let me, let me, let me back up. Jesus is walking in chapter one through these candlesticks, representing the seven churches, right? The picture there is that Jesus is the one above the candlesticks. You know, uh, when, when you see somebody passing through candlesticks, who exists for who? Do the candlesticks exi exist for the one passing through the candlesticks, or does the one passing through the candlesticks exist for the candlesticks? The candlesticks clearly exist for the benefit of the other. So the, so the picture we see in Revelation chapter 1 is Jesus is the one above the churches. That may seem really obvious, but let me tell you, a lot in our culture, we act, we talk, we pray as though Jesus exists for us. Our preaching, our theology, our practice, it would appear that we think Jesus exists for us. Now let me make no mistake about it, Jesus voluntarily laid down his life for the church. In a sense, you could say, he gave it all for us, without a doubt, but he is ascended into the highest place. And the church is only going to be who the church is called to be if we can see that and realize he passes through us as the candlesticks. He is the one who is making sure these candlesticks function as they should. If you know anything about a candle back in those days, most of us don't because we flick a switch to turn the light on, but there was oil and there was a wick. It was necessary to trim the wick sometimes. How many of you ever had Jesus trimming your wick sometimes? And you think it's painful. Jesus, I want you to get this. Just like he is the vine dresser in, in John chapter 15. He is the one trimming the wick in, in Revelation chapter 1. He's, he's speaking and revealing himself to his church as his modus operandi of causing each of these churches to be as they should. As we look through these churches, I want to ask all of us, can we humble ourselves to realize that same Jesus is still walking through the candlesticks. He is walking through this church. We exist for him, not the other way around. And no matter how much we want to pat ourselves on the back and think we're doing good, we need to humble ourselves to hear the head of the church and bend our knee to him and let him be the one leading us. 
or else why, what are we even doing anyway? Everything else is just man-made. So the format, like I said, is that he starts with a revelation of himself to each of these churches. And we're going to, over the next number of weeks, we're going to behold the revelation of how he just reveals himself to each of these churches. How, pay close attention how Jesus reveals himself to you, by the way. Because how he reveals himself to you is usually a strong indicator of what he's called you to do. He reveals one, Jesus the merciful. Because he's called that person to become an extension of his mercy. To another, he reveals Jesus, the reigning one with authority. Because he's called that one to, to demonstrate and to represent the authority of Jesus in the earth. Do you follow what I'm saying? How he reveals himself. And so we were looking at how he revealed himself. Secondly, is all these churches, he commends them for something. In other words, what we should be doing. So we're going to look at one, revelation of Jesus. Two, how he commends the church to suggest to us what we should be doing. Thirdly, how he corrects the church. In other words, what the church should stop doing. I would suggest if Jesus says the church should stop doing it, we should stop doing it. Fourthly is a warning. What will happen if we don't respond? How many of you feel like that sounds scary? Well, the reality is this is the voice of the one who died on a cross for us. He's not warning us because he's threatening us. He's warning us because he loves us. And fifthly, promise what will happen if we do respond. So important. Let's look at Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Starting with this first thing, the revelation of Jesus. In this first verse, we see Jesus revealing himself. To the angel, or to the messenger, of the church in Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his hand, who walks in the midst of of the seven golden lampstands. Before he says any other part of his message to this church in Ephesus, he wants to reveal an aspect of who he is. And who is he? In this case, he wants to reveal himself as the one who has the seven stars. That means the seven probably senior pastors, even though it's not a biblical term, lead elder, uh, the 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 the, the, what you and I would conventionally know and traditionally know as the pastors of a church. He holds them in his right hand. Hello, pastor. Do you remember that? He holds them in his right hand and he walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. What are we seeing here is that Jesus is, a, I've already said it, so I'll just say it quickly again. He is above his church. And he's watching over his church, intending to it that it would produce light into an otherwise dark space called the world the way it was intended to. And we need the work of Jesus for us to be this. No longer is it okay that we're just Sunday churchgoers and say we've ticked our Christian box. No, no, no. We need the one who's walking through the lampstands to do whatever it is that he wants in us, that we would be who he wants us to be, not what we're comfortable with being. So Jesus is above his church. And another thing, and again, I've already said this. I'll just repeat it quickly. The idea here, folks, is clearly that the church exists for Jesus, not the other way around. So then we go into the second verse where we get into what I said earlier. There's the commendation. In other words, what we should be doing. He says, I love that. By the way, can I make a little tip here for some of you who are parents or leaders 
look at the Jesus method of bringing correction to people that he leads. He first tells them what is good about them. He starts by acknowledging what they are doing right. Then he tells them what's going wrong. Then he warns them of pleading with them, I don't want this to happen to you, but here's what's going to happen if you don't hear me. And then he says, here's what's going to happen if you do respond. Rather than going straight into the correction and then the warning and I hope you hear me. You follow what I'm saying? It's the Jesus sandwich. It's, it's commendation, then the hard thing, and then the good thing again. Right? Okay, so that's a free tip. And it's very practically useful, let me tell you. In fact, if you want to correct me, please do that. <laughs> it goes down better. Anyways, what we should be doing. Jesus says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. I would, I would suggest that in the interesting and somewhat rocky history of Border City Church, uh, I could say we probably would be described as very similar to this. As I've been studying through this particular message this morning, it's hit home in a very, very deep way. I know your works. I mean, some of you would remember, we have done Love Detroit on the uh, events of giving out food and, and connecting socially with people on the streets of Woodward Avenue and making friends with all sorts of homeless people to rich and wealthy people and everything in between loving Detroit and faithful to do that. And we volunteered at Detroit Rescue Mission Ministries, going in and sitting with men who were homeless and pouring our lives out and, and trying to speak into them some things that could help them. We went into the Detroit public school system and um, and as a faith-based organization invited by the um, superintendent who started this faith-based organization and went into Durfee Elementary School and tutored and connected and brought resource and connected even in my real estate business, resource into that place and saw things. We've, we have worked. We have worked. We have reached out. We have reached out to our neighbors continuously where we've lived and had them over for dinner. We prayed for them. We've We've tried to love on everybody. We've, we've, we've worked, and Jesus is saying, I'm not trying to puff us up when I say this. I'm just saying this is for real. I know your works, your labor, your patience. You know, I mean, we've been at this thing for five years. Uh, there's, there's a patience thing. I think when, when it used, I used to get compliments from my colleagues from around the NCMI world for other things today, when people are complimenting me, who relate to me, you know what it's almost always? Man, you guys are so faithful. I mean, you have stuck it out in, in the city of Detroit. It's just, a, you guys are heroes. You're so, you're patient and endurance and your perseverance. That's, that's what sticks out today to people. That's, Jesus says, I know your, your, your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And, uh, it, you know, there, there has been things that we've had to do, where we've had to take strong stands. Not, not to say that people are evil, but when people wanted to influence the life of the church and bring in things that aren't biblical, aren't helpful, we've stood that up. And, and likewise, you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. There have been people who have tried to uh, take leadership roles and positions and, and actually um, had things exposed in their lives. And, you know, some, some could just kind of sweep that under the carpet and say it's the grace of God and just let them do what they feel to do. We've been tried to do, be diligent and to, 
Make sure that whoever has a leadership role in this church is, is truly going to be helpful for the church, right? I would say Jesus probably would say very similar things that he's saying to Ephesus to us, probably. And then if you look with me in verse 3, and you have persevered and have patience and have labor, labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. If I'm honest with you this morning, perhaps that last two, two words, those last two words are probably the only difference between us and Ephesus is if I'm honest, there have been times where I feel like I have become weary. Everything else, I feel, I feel like Jesus probably would say. He sees our works. We have worked. We've labored. We've had patience. You know, we've tried to maintain a healthy spiritual atmosphere um, throughout it all. But let's, let's just before we get into the rest of this, I, I, want to, I want to recap because Jesus is saying here what is good in a church. He would commend these things. So let's just take stock of these. I know your works, and I want us to all ask this question. Are we doing something with our faith? Faith without works is dead. It's the one thing to have a confession of faith. It's another thing to have a demonstration of faith. Jesus is not just looking for words. He's looking for action. I want to just ask yourself that question. Rhetorical question, private, you and Jesus. Jesus, am I using my faith? Let's look at this next thing. Labor. I know your works. I know your labor question to ask ourselves are am i laboring for his church this is what jesus commends in the church i met with some young men last night and we talked about leadership in the church and in in first timothy 3 the first thing that paul mentions about leadership in the church is about labor he who desires the office of a bishop desires a good work It's, it's it's labor that's what leadership is, to follow Jesus and to build his church with him looks like labor. And I want to ask ourselves, all, am I laboring for the building of the church? Am I serving in the church? Do I carry weight? This isn't to be heavy. This is to call us to who we are. Do, we ex- do I exist for the church or the other way around? Do we as a church exist for him and exist for the community? Or are we hoping that Jesus and the community are going to do what we want? Labor. It's action. It's doing something. That Jesus commends here, apparently. Next thing, real quick, patience. Just ask, a, ask ourselves this question. And this is huge, guys. Let me tell you something. If you're going to walk in the call of God, this is going to be tested. Do I bail when the going gets tough? How many pastors, how many church planters, seeing the reality, feeling the call on day one and on day 720, suddenly feeling the call to be somewhere else? You know, and that's just church planters. Whatever your call is, do I bail in doing good? Do we quit when circumstances are hard or the feelings are no longer there? God said, God is leading me to do this. Months later, uh, that was back then. 
Do we, do we quit when we don't see results? If I'm straight up, that is, that's been a test for me and Linda. Patience. God commends patience. And he says it's through faith and patience that we inherit the promises of God. It's not just faith. It's endurance in faith. Holding the line. Holding on to Jesus. Another thing quickly. You cannot bear those who are evil. So I want to ask the question, do we embrace God's word? Because this is what this is really getting down to. Do we embrace God's word as our authoritative standard, or is it you do you? You do you. Which basically means whatever your truth is, just live in that. Well, that's cool if you're not a believer. But when we become a follower of Jesus, I don't want to do me. I want to do him. And I want to seek his will and his purpose. And whenever I see in his word what his will and his purpose is, I change for that, not the other way around. And Jesus commends that. You don't bear those who are trying to influence your atmosphere with evil and things that are, how do we know what's evil? We look at his word. Are we okay? And then you test those who say that they are apostles and are not. Let me ask you this. Do we want people promoted into spiritual authority because of gifting, because of charisma, or anything natural? Or do we want people who verifiably are going to be helpful for the spiritual health of God's people? That Jesus is walking through the candle stands and he cares greatly Not about what's politically popular or socially. He cares greatly about what he knows. The head of the church is helpful for who this church is called to be. To become a lamp that shines brightly. And we cannot reform the church according to what we think is going to work. Oh Jesus, like you haven't been watching Fox and CNN. You don't know what's, I mean, trust me. We'll take care of this. We know how it's going to work. No. Are you all right? We, we can't just try to do what is cool or what is in vogue or what works. And there's a lot of what works in American church today. I think we need to get back to Jesus works, and we don't. Okay, so then we move into correction. Correction, verse 4. And, and here is really the, the whole point of, of, this first, of this message today. Revelations 2 verse 4, Revelation 2 verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you. And I hear in the voice of Jesus in these words, not one who's just angrily pointing a finger. It's the voice of a tender shepherd who wants his church with him. Nevertheless, I have this one thing against you, that you have left your first love If perhaps I could suggest right there, you see the whole of the heart of the Father and Jesus wrapped up in in, in just a few words. my, My real purpose beyond these works and labor and patience and all these things that I just pointed out that you do, and I and I do congratulate, I do commend you for these things, pat you on the back. This is what it's all about. Is that you have you be in a place of love 
And can I remind us this morning, in the creation, I think, I think in the creation and then the, the new creation, we see this heart of God reinforced. In the, I'll take a little bit of liberty here, but let me just kind of suggest something. In creation, the scripture says that when God created Adam, he created him from the, from the dust of the earth. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And I want you to just think that one all the way through of what must have happened in that moment when God breathed into nostrils, not just his lungs, into his face, the breath of life. And Adam presumably would have, <gasps> and he opened his eyes, what would be the first thing he would have seen? It would be, the, it would be just like a baby. When, when, a, when, a, when a parent takes a baby into their heart and, and, and looking and staring into their eyes, and the first thing, the first orientation of all existence that Adam had was the, was the intense, piercing eyes of love into his soul. It's always been about love. And the beautiful thing about when we become part of the new creation, for those of you in this room who have experienced being born again, I just talked about the first physical birth, at the age of 17, I got born again, spiritually. And every single person, because of the gospel, you cannot become born again without knowing the gospel, which is this, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on a cross for you. And the moment that you become born again, that same love is piercing into your soul to not just say, to see the face of God and to see this loving image, it is to know that that one actually loves you to the point of dying for you even when you're a sinner and you're deserving of the punishment and he's not, he takes your punishment for you. You follow what I'm saying? Every believer, every new creation goes into their new life in the kingdom of God with that image of God. That God loves me ridiculously. So in both creation, the, the, the first creation and even us, the new creation, we see this issue of love, and the whole idea is that we would enter in into a love relationship with God. That's it. That's the heart of God. It's not just, it's not just that you would be, do be a good Christian. It's not that being a good Christian is wrong. You follow? He commends those things. But all of that stuff, in one sense, doesn't even matter if we're not abiding in that place of a love relationship with God. A few days ago, I, was, um, I came home, and I grabbed an apple. And uh, if you know my dog, Stanley, he goes nuts when you come home. I don't know what that is. I guess it's like a dog thing. But when you come home, even if you left for five minutes, it is like... The, 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 the glory of the moment starts all over again. If anybody walks through that door, through that threshold into the house, it is as exciting as Christmas every time without fail. And I went in and I grabbed an apple from the, from the, uh, from the kitchen and he darted down the stairs to go see me because I've come home and he's running up to me and the tail is going nuts and he's wanting to sniff my leg and, and, uh, and I'm holding this apple and I see him looking at my hand and Minda says, oh, Paul, he loves you. And I thought to myself, you know what? He's not even looking at me. 
He's looking at my hand. And I said, Minden, no, he doesn't. He loves my apple. That's what he, that's what he really loves. And, and, and as, I, as I walked away from that moment, I thought, isn't that profound, actually? What you look at, really, that's what you really love. And I think a lot of us have our tails wagging, and we're looking kind of in the direction of God. But really, we're looking at something. We're wanting something from him. We're, we're kind of in the direction, but not really him. And, and what God is saying here is, you've left your first love. You have made it essentially, and some of you may not get much out of this, and others will, you've made it actually about church. You made it about ministry. And how deceptive can that be? Because ch ministry, church, that's good. Jesus is saying, that's not, that, that, it, that comes out of the other. But the true issue is heart, love, connection. And so, here's just a couple thoughts, I think, excuse me. Well, let's go into this fourth section, Revelation 2.5, the warning. But we're going to get into what we can do about what we just referenced there. Revelation 2.5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, which I think would, would be, mean return. So if you want to be cute, you've got remember. That's the first R. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The second R, repent. And then first works, which I'll say return, is the third R. Repent, remember, repent, return, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So let's just start off this thing about this first love thing, because I really want to dive into this, and, and, uh, and my prayer is that you and I would return to our first love this morning. But some descriptors, you know, of... of kind of description I remember of my first love. I became a Christian at the age of 17, my senior year of high school. I spent a year not knowing any other, biblically speaking, Christians for a year. I got born again, saved, whatever you want to say, in my room, not in a church, didn't have fellowship with Christians, went to college, met my first other Christian there, became part of the campus ministry that he was a part of, and uh, when I went home for that first summer break after my freshman year, I had been turned on to Jesus completely. I had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. I had had fellowship for the first time. I had made major life, you know, steps of faith and obedience during the course of that year to change things that I knew God was wanting to correct in my life. I mean, I was tight, you know, and I went home that summer. We were converting in my university from a, I can't remember, a quarter to semester system, I think it was, and... Um, and to make up the difference, we had to extend the summer to make it four months. So I had four months back in Atlanta. I didn't have a car, and that meant that I couldn't go out partying with my old friends. I got a job at Pizza Hut, you know, a man with a vision for his life. And, uh, and I worked 30 hours a week at Pizza Hut, which was like a five-minute walk from my parents' house. And I, 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 this, my life was I would go to Pizza Hut, I would work. I would come home, and I would devour the scripture. I would fast. 
which is amazing because I worked at Pizza Hut. I would fast. I would pray. I would pray in tongues. I would sing. I would, I would, I mean, I had so much, I was so hungry to just connect with God. And I want to say this thing of, of first love, what did you do if you would identify? Some of you would say, you know what, I don't even know if I've ever had a first love with God. And that's okay. Because whether you've had it at one time and you've fallen from that, or perhaps you've never had it at all, what any of us in this room can do is the exact same thing this morning. But if you have had a first love, so to speak, in your life, ask this yourselves the question, what, what, what did that moment look like for you? What were the, he, he says, return and do the first works. What were the things that you did that were an outflow of that first love? I would want to suggest it's probably something to do with being with him. Hungry for his word, hungry for his presence, hungry to be with him, hungry to know him more. That probably is the simplicity of it this morning, folks. That there are other things in the process of life, little compromises, little things that become more important than that. And we continue on our Christian journey, march on Christian soldier, doing the church thing, but we don't have that thing anymore. And I want to say we don't have to live that way. We don't have to live that way. We can live as adults with kids and career or whatever your weight that you carry is. You can live. We can live in that place of first love. So you want to know what to do, what Jesus says to do about this? Three, three things. First step, remember. He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The first thing is remember. And again, I, I ask, you know, what did you do when you, when you had your first love? Remember it. It was probably something having to do with being enamored with Jesus and wanting to be with him. Remember it. Can some of you remember? Remember? I can definitely remember. And without being condemned, but rather being inspired, if I'm, if I'm vulnerable and honest with you, not preaching at you, I'm going through this together with you, I, want, I actually want more of that. You know what I'm saying? Like the 19-year-old Paul. I, my life is better today. I've got more wisdom. I've, I know Jesus more and all that kind of stuff. But that love, that absolute nothing else mattered. And I know that we can't, like, you know, we can't stop playing basketball just because we love Jesus or something. It's not what we're... It's, it's, it's that captivating of your heart. So remember that. First step is remember. Can I suggest, the, before we get on to the second step, let me point something out. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Jesus uses the word fallen. Do, did you read what Jesus said about this church right before this? I know your works, your labor, your patience. Do you think they would describe their spiritual life as I've fallen? You've tested apostles. You have not borne those who are evil. We have done the Christian thing. Do you think they would have described themselves as fallen? And the other question is, does it matter? 
if we would not describe ourselves as fallen, if the head of the church who's walking through the candle stands would use that word to describe your state? How many of us would not describe ourselves as fallen, but Jesus would? Why? Because we compare ourselves with ourselves. Well, I'm doing good in the Christian community. I'm, I'm I, you know, I see this guy, and I'm more or less doing kind of living like them and them, and I'm doing all right. Well, Jesus, from his perspective, knowing what is dear to his heart, what it's always been about for him, for him, from my perspective, Jesus would say, you've fallen. You're doing all this stuff, but you've missed the whole purpose of why I came into the earth and died for you. I want you to have me and me to have you. All the other stuff can come out of that. This is the point. And I, I would dare say Jesus is probably calling many of us this morning back into that place. Myself included. So the first step is remember. The second step is repent. Repent is, you know, probably because of billboards and weirdos at baseball games who are like, repent for the end is near. I want to ask you as a sub-question, how many Christians have you met? And you ask them, how did you become a Christian? And they said, well, I was walking down the street one day and I saw somebody calling a sign and it said, repent for the end is near. And I was like, you're right. Like, show me this Jesus. Maybe I need to repent now. Do you follow what I'm saying? We, we have this word repent and we think it's horrible. It's, it comes from the Greek word metaneu. That's what's translated as repent, which means to change your mind. The idea here is simply changing course. So Jesus is saying, here's my reality. You've, you've fallen. And you've fallen from that intimacy with me. And the way to fix this problem, you've got to remember where we once were together. I remember it, Jesus would say. I remember it because it's been the most precious thing in my life. There's nothing that matters more to me, Jesus would say, than that. I remember it well. I want you to remember that place that we once shared together. And, and two, I want you to repent, which just means course change. You're right. I've, I'm fallen. I was once there. I'm here now. And I want to, I'm, I'm, I'm deciding I'm going back to that. That's it. Simple Jesus is repent, and can I just point out, repent is not about feeling sorry. Repent isn't even about feelings at all. It's just about making a decision. You know, if I'm going to, uh, <laughs> if I'm going somewhere with my family and I miss the exit, my wife probably wants me to feel feelings. I can assure you that. <laughs> But the important thing is not that I feel bad, it's that I course correct and fix the problem. Get off on the next exit, turn back, go the opposite, you follow what I'm saying? It's not, it's, Jesus doesn't need you to feel sorry. This isn't, and, and, and feeling sorry in, 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 in lieu of course change is not helping either of you. It's just simply see where you once were and make a decision to come back there, that's it. And then third step, return. Or as Jesus says, do the first works. And I would say, as I pondered this, it's just ruthlessly making whatever changes necessary to keep the main, the main thing the main thing. 
there's this expression that's popped around in churchianity. Keep the, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. And I love what Tyron Daniel says, who, Tyron who leads the NCMI, church, uh, NCMI team that our church partners with globally. Tyron often says, you know, I get what they're meaning by that, but let me, I would say it this way. The main thing is to keep the main one the main thing. And so Jesus is saying, remember where you were, repent, make a decision to course change, to return, to go back, and then do whatever you need to do to facilitate the main one being the main thing again. Doesn't it seem so obvious and so simple that this ought to be, this surely has to be the most important thing for church to become who she's supposed to be? Right? And if that's the case, don't you think this is the number one thing that the enemy of our souls wants to attack and to pull us away from? In such subtle little ways. Just little things. Oh, I've got to take care of this. I need, I need to be a responsible person. So I need to take care of this and I'll get back to this and I'll... Letting the things of life crowd into that place between you and Jesus before, before long. You're doing the works. You're being patient. You're persevering. You're doing church stuff. But there's that little niggly void between you and him from a heart level. Revelations 2.6, Jesus, the warning is that, well, actually, before I go into Revelations 2.6, the, the warning, as we read in verse 5, he says, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If the lampstand, as we know, represents the church, then Jesus is simply saying, I'm going to remove you as a church from its place if we can't get this issue right. In other words, there would no longer be a church in Ephesus if the church in Ephesus can't get this issue right. The idea here is that if we leave the place of our first love as the followers of Jesus, no matter how good the stuff that we do is, we've got maybe soup kitchens and doing stuff for the poor and all this kind of stuff. But if we've left our first love, that inevitably is going to lead to a perversion of what the gospel really is all about. It's going to become something perhaps unbiblical or it's going to become something humanistic or if it's going to become anything other than Jesus and the reality of his kingdom. And it would be more helpful, Jesus would say, for you and for the city for you not to even represent my name in that city. It would be more helpful for you, the city, and for my kingdom. But Jesus isn't just like lopping the head off the church and saying, you bad people. He's actually trimming the wick. And this issue right here, the most fundamental issue there is, if not held rightly, can become a reason that we would actually be more useful not existing together as a church than the other way around. So there's the warning, weighted warning. In verse 6, he says, But this I have you, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And I just want to make a quick comment on that, because that's a a big thing. But the sad thing here is, folks, Nicolaitans, obviously Jesus hates their deeds. And my last name comes from the same root word as Paul Nichols, 
My last name comes from the Greek word nikeo, which means victory for the people, from which we get the word Nike. You would like that, Josh. You can associate me with Nike. <laughs> Uh, means victory for the people. The Nicolaitans, the idea here is, is a doctrine or deed of, of conquering the people. And most theologians would believe it's doctrines that were beginning to it, it, get into the church of a separation between clergy and laity, where the clergy were the ones who kind of dominated over the laity and uh, the hierarchical kind of thing. And I would even say, hopefully, I think, Jesus that we at this church have done well to keep that from here, that we, we are very intentional with making that leadership is not top-down. Leadership is out front. Leadership is going ahead, seeing what needs to get done, and modeling it so that p other people can follow, not be commanded with commands from top-down. And so let's keep that, right? And you're looking at me saying, well, you're the one who needs to keep it. Okay, I'll keep it. <laughs> But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And here comes the promise in verse 7. This is what will happen if we respond. This is important. He who has an ear. Do we have an ear this morning? Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. And the word of the Lord is going to come to each of these seven churches saying that very phrase. To him who overcomes. The idea is if you will respond to what Jesus is saying in terms of correction and overcoming that, if you get this right, I will give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. If we can return to our first love, Jesus is breathing, whispering into our ears this morning, what this looks like, my friends, is that you and I will live in a place here on the earth where we are participating in divine life. The leading of the Holy Spirit, the endowment of power from on high, the presence of God, supernatural Jesus-type living stems from having our first love. We all doctrinally know that we have the Spirit of God, the tree of life inside of us. That is different from actually eating the fruit of that tree. Actually seeing it manifest in our lives. This is the issue of returning to our first love. And so if I could just recap quickly and then we can respond. The revelation of Jesus is that he is over the church and all the church is and holds the leaders in his hand, and he's trimming the wicks of those churches to shine brightly. What we should be doing in maintaining our works, labor, patience, refusing evil, testing voices, and persevering. What we should need to change is we need to return to our first love. And if we don't, we are in jeopardy of our, ourselves as a local church being less helpful to the kingdom of God existing than we would if we didn't exist as a local church. And the promise is that if we will return to our first love, we will experience divine life. Could I just ask us to close our eyes this morning?